Hey, what's up, guys? This is Pastor Austin from Good Shepherd Church, and this is our podcast. So happy you're tuning in this week to stay caught up on what the Lord's doing in us and through us. I hope this content encourages you. I hope it challenges you, builds up your love for Jesus. Hope you enjoy the message. We love you. Um, we are in a series that we've been doing that we're calling Summer in the Psalms. And so if you are a rocket scientist, you can figure out that this summer we are going through different Psalms. <laughs> These are the second surface jokes, you know, and that's just what you get. So I love y'all. We have been, uh, honestly, it's been a really fun series so far. I've been enjoying it. Um, I hope, you know, you could say the same. It's been really good for us to go through. We've just been uh, tackling different Psalms that are uh, hold a lot of significance or carry a lot of weight as we go through the scriptures. And before we get to the Psalm today, uh, I just, I want to kind of tee it up with the background story that goes into this Psalm. Uh, the background story goes like this. It's a proverb. A man, a man comes and he starts telling a proverb and he says, uh, the proverb goes like this. There, there's a rich man and a poor man and they're not uh, in a bar. Okay. It's not a joke. It's a parable. But the rich man and the poor man, uh, one has a lot he has herds that are aplenty, if you know what I mean. He's got, he's got tons of animals, tons of different possessions, tons of things that belong to him. He's very well off. Juxtapose that next to this person who is a poor man. And this poor man doesn't have flocks. He has one ewe lamb. This one ewe lamb, it says in the parable that he, that he cares for him with just like the utmost care. It's almost like some of y'all's family dogs. It gets treated more like a kid than it does a fur animal, you know? You know what I mean. You know those people if you're not those people, Okay. This, this ewe lamb is raised in the house. This ewe lamb is fed at the table, eats from the very same bowl, sleeps in the very same beds. It is as if it's one of the kids, but it is the only ewe lamb that belongs to this person. And the parable goes like this. There is a person journeying from out of town who comes to the town and they need to prepare and sacrifice an animal for this person to have a meal. Well, the rich man, rather than take from his plenty, goes and steals the one ewe lamb from this person. And this was his everything. It was as if it was his very own son or daughter. His, they take from this person, they steal from him, sacrifice this lamb. And at this telling that Nathan the prophet is giving to King David, King David is morally outraged. So this is absolutely wrong. This is worthy of death in my kingdom. Not only is it worthy of death, but it, he should have to repay that which he stole by, the matter, by, by a factor of four. In that moment, how Nathan responds to him is, David, this story's about you. And for those of you who know the story out of 2 Samuel chapter 11 and 12, you know that what is happening in this moment is the moral ground that, that David was standing on is beginning to corrupt and corrode beneath him. Because what has happened is he's now officially been outed as the adulterer who stole from the man Uriah, his wife, wife Bathsheba. If you're not familiar with the story, David, it starts like this in 2 Samuel 11. It was the springtime when kings should have been at war, but David remained at home. So David, for whatever reason, takes for himself a holiday, stays at home, finds himself with some idle time, a dangerous tool in the hands of many, has some idle time, sees himself one late evening. He sees on a rooftop Bathsheba bathing. And in a moment of compulsive behavior, he says, I must have her. Brings her over to his house. And, and she is, lo and behold, she gets pregnant after that night. She's pregnant. And now David's got a real mess on his hands. As if it wasn't messy before, now he has a baby that he has to also sort of reconcile with how he just is going to make this whole web of lies work together. 
So he, can, he comes up with this plan to bring Uriah home from the front lines. He, he try to, tries to wine and dine Uriah and says, hey, now go and be with your wife. Take this holiday from war and spend some time with your wife. Three different nights, three different attempts. Uriah is a man loyal to the king, loyal to the kingdom, and loyal to his fellow uh, um, battlefield members. He says, I'm not going to take the luxury of being at home with my wife while my friends are on the front lines of battle. I will not. So David tries, he might, he can't get Uriah to go home to Bathsheba, his wife, to make this somehow look like it might be his baby. And so what does he do from there? He arranges to have Uriah move to the front line of battle where he will inevitably and for sure be killed. And that's what happens. And David gets to step in and kind of assume position as the hero of the story, who gets to now adopt the son and care for the grieving widow. I got to imagine that David thought he had it all figured out. He probably thought his, his worst days were behind him. Other Psalms would indicate that David, though, was still at this point of, of irreconciliation between his soul, between what he knew it had happened and what he was parading around. He was living a duplicitous life, knowing that he had committed this horrible sin. And he says things and writes different things in Psalms like, my, my bones were rotting within me. And so when Nathan the prophet comes and tells this story, now not only is Nathan outed to his country, not only is he outed now um, in, in the scriptures, but he's outed, as we can tell, for the rest of time. You and I, generations now, get to read of David's mistake. And this is the context in which David turns and then writes the 51st Psalm. Is that immense feeling of guilt and despair and hopelessness. And if we're honest, you and I have all felt that same feeling. Whether or not we felt guilt on the same level that King David felt it, every single one of us has felt guilty. David was in what my mentor, a mentor of mine speaking to my life, he, he would say, David was in his, his decade of dumb. The years 45 to 55, been warned of this, have been taught of this, that as men, especially as you reach the age of 45 to 55, you, you're probably starting to reach sort of the pinnacle of your career. So finances are starting to be more disposable than ever. Time is now more easily come by than ever before. You have time to make mistakes. You have income and power and prestige to make mistakes. And so he calls it the decade of dumb. It's where a lot of mistakes happen. It's where a lot of marriages crumble. It's where a lot of bad things happen to really good meaning people. And that's what David got caught up in. And he felt a taste of guilt. But again, every single person in this room, I'm guessing you have felt a twinge of guilt at some point in your life. I, I would argue it is, it is one of the baseline emotions that is going to lead us all into Christianity. You do not become a Christian without first becoming aware and guilty of your own sin. You would have no reason to turn to Jesus if you did not first feel guilty. Jesus said it himself, I did not come to save the healthy, those who thought they had it all put together, those who thought they had their life all arranged neatly, who had no mistakes or no wrong uh, record in their, track, in, their, in their past. Jesus says, no, I, I came to save those who were sick, those who were desperate, those who, those who knew that they needed help. So in the 51st Psalm, David begins to write his response to the wrong that he'd committed. But the first thing that we have to understand before we even look at the Psalm is this. Don't, you, you cannot be deceived. The, the devil would love to lie to you, especially on a morning like this morning, and convince you that you have out the grace of God. That your track record, your story, the history that you have, nobody else knows it. And you're sitting there thinking, Austin, how dare you tell, tell me what kind of grace I can receive today because you have no idea what I've been through. And I would say, how dare you make that accusation against God that you have somehow out his ocean of grace? Don't be deceived. Nobody has out the grace of God. You want to just do a little fun run through the Bible? You have Abraham, Father Abraham, many sons, right? Many sons had Father Abraham. I'm one of them. So are you. 
Let's just praise the Lord. Oh, you mean the guy who, you mean the guy who like gave his wife away a couple different times? That Abraham? You talking about Moses, the guy who buried an Egyptian with his own bare hands and buried him in the sand? You, you want to talk about David, the adulterer, and maybe you don't want to give him murderer, but he's certainly murderer by proxy in the way that he killed Uriah. He was certainly responsible for it. You want to bop over to the New Testament? Matthew, tax collector. Tax collectors were representative of, representatives of a tyrannical government and were exploiting their own people for their own profit and for the profit of their country. Hello, that doesn't fly well in a time like today, for sure. You have Peter, who's the coward who can't even affirm his relationship with Jesus in front of the social equivalent of what has to just be an elementary schooler in today's world. He has no backbone to stand up. He has no, no way to stand up with Jesus. You have, you have Saul, who writes most of your New Testament, by the way, guilty of murder himself, guilty of persecuting the church. So quit lying to yourself. Get off of your moral high horse that thinks you are better off saving yourself. You're not. And you're in good company in the biblical characters that you read about time and time again. They're not better than you. And oftentimes their, their stories were far more broken, filled with just as much pain, just as many mistakes. And they encountered the same grace that you and I are in need of still today. It's the grace of God that saves us. It's the grace of God that meets us in these moments of guilt. And if you never feel guilt, this is why a sermon like this, a psalm like this, Psalm 51, is so unpopular in the world that we live in today. It's because we don't like to tell people that they're guilty of something. We don't. But, but without the experience of the emotion, guilt, like I have, you know the feeling. The sick to your stomach, the just, the, 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 oh, like the pain, the punch in the gut of just like, I messed up. Without that feeling, you're never going to turn to Jesus and you're never going to experience the freedom that we just sang about in these songs. So don't be deceived. Nobody's out sending the grace of God. Before we jump to Psalm 51, 2 Corinthians kind of teased this conversation up for us when it says, Paul says this in chapter 7, verse 10. It says, there is a godly grief that produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. How nice does that sound to some people in the room right now? You live a life of regret right now. You're living a life of pain. You're living a life of secrets. You're living a life of trying to spin this web of lies that you never get outed. And God's saying right here, there is a godly grief that produces repentance. It produces a change of direction. Like you're thinking in this direction. Now you're going to start thinking in this direction. I'm going to go a different way. And that, that repentance leads to salvation, life without regret. Whereas worldly grief produces death. Now, a quick note on worldly grief. How do you know if what you're feeling when you're feeling grieved in a moment is godly grief or worldly grief? Because they seem to take us to two totally different places, salvation or death. So how do I know if the grief that I'm feeling right now in this moment, is it from God or is it from the world? Worldly grief centers all around you. Oh, you know, like the classic example would be your toddler that throws a nuclear fit some morning and then they feel regret later. They feel grieved by their mistakes later. But why are they feeling that regret? Well, it's because now they have to deal with the consequences that you're going to give them. And so they're not mad at their behavior. They're mad that they got busted. They're mad that they're being disciplined about it. How many, like this is, this is like athletes 101 when they mess up and do something totally stupid. And then their apology is like, well, I'm really sorry for the people that got offended by what I did. It's like, hold on just a sec. That is not an apology. An apology is taking ownership for your own decisions. Rather, they're always saying like, man, I'm sorry if you got offended. And it's like, why would you just put that on somebody else? It's all centered around what did 
I do? What am I losing? I'm mad at myself. All of that is a worldly grief because it's focused on us. But godly grief begins when you become burdened by the fact that you have sinned primarily, first and foremost, against God. This is why David can write, now as we turn to the 51st Psalm, he says, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Notice the direction of David's prayer right now. He has no other appeal than to reach out to the merciful, compassionate, and loving God. Because that's all that he has left. He can't appeal to his track record. He's like, well, you know, I did this cool thing with Goliath, God. I really was like, I took care of the sheep well on the hillside. I've really been leading the kingdom well up until this point. This point, by the way, when he falls with Bathsheba, that is, that is like the moment that historians agree. This is when the kingdom of Israel began to fall. And David can't appeal to anything that he's done in his past. He can't appeal to his track record. All he can appeal to in this moment is like, please be merciful, kind, loving, compassionate God. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. David, in this passage, he's going to use all the words for sin. Sin, iniquity, transgression, all of them speak to falling short of God, having something in you from the very beginning of when you were born that is bent towards unrighteousness. And he's going to use all these words for sin just to basically communicate, it was me, I'm responsible. And I have failed you, God. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgression and my sin is ever before me. Look at this line. Against you and you only have I sinned. Does that verse feel right when we first read it? Like, don't you think Uriah would kind of read that verse differently? Like, homie, you didn't just sin against God. You killed me, right? You know? Like when I read this, it feels like, no, David, his sin, he committed sin against other people also. Bathsheba, Uriah, he was sinful towards other people first. What David is saying when he says against you, God, and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. What he's saying is he knows the secret to genuine repentance is turning to the Lord first because until we are reconciled vertically to God in heaven, it will not matter what kind of reconciliation we achieve horizontally here on earth. Because sin that we commit in front of a holy, perfect God renders us unqualified to stand before him in heaven. Do we get that? So that only leaves one other destination for us to go. And so for David to commit adultery, for David to commit murder, he comes primarily first and foremost in front of God to say, I have sinned. Can you please, God, be merciful to me? Can you spare me? Can you blot out this transgression? That's a bold thing to ask for, isn't it? Can you blot this, trans- this transgression out of my record? Can you, can you sort of like just not count that one today, please? It comes before God and all genuine repentance, all godly grief starts with the recognition, first and foremost, that you have sinned primarily. You may have sinned against other people, but your sin primarily and most costly is against God on high. Psalm 32, five, he says it in just a little bit different way. David writes, I acknowledge my sin to you and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin, Selah. Second thing that we notice out of this passage is that genuine repentance does not come with excuses. Yeah, ooh, I don't know who said that, but it's, listen, if you want to excuse your sin away, you're living at the right time in human history. Because there are so many people, so many friends probably in your corner who will say, well, of course you did that. I mean, but it's just, do you know what he did? Well, of course you should have permission to go do that. Do you understand how he lived his life? 
hey, listen, you, of course, you should turn to that bottle because you have been very stressed. You've earned this. You've earned a night off, just blow off some steam. Is that not the mantra that we continually live in today? Excuse sin, make excuses because you deserve whatever licentious or wrong or broken behavior that you're about to participate in. You earned it. Go, you deserve, deserve a little bit of that. Listen, I'm not trying to like disqualify or discredit you getting a little you time, okay? That's not what this is about. I am saying though, if you have people in your life that are, com- that are consistently reaffirming the sinful patterns in your life, you need to get yourself away from those people because that sin's not leading you in the right direction. It's not leading you to where you want to go. It's not leading you towards repentance. We will, if we continually excuse our behavior and make excuses for our behavior, then what we're going to do is we are going to stifle and truncate our growth as Christians. We're not going to walk out in everything that God has to offer us if we're continually saying, well, God, the only reason that I did that was because, you know, this thing's going on over here. How often does repentance that you hear of it today, even in your own life today, think about it. Just do maybe like a little self-inventory. Repentance is like, oh God, I, I am so sorry that I lied to that person. But God, you know that if I would have told the truth, it could have done way more damage in my life and in theirs if I would have just told the truth. So I'm just going to keep on lying. Or you're just excusing your sin and you're missing the opportunity to grow. Uh, you know, I, I think so often, in, especially in the world we're living in today with social media and everything that's going on that's so present there, it's easy to excuse why, yeah, I just, I wanted the attention there because I wasn't getting it here. And he wasn't paying attention to me, but they were online. She wasn't paying attention to me, but then I found this girl who messaged me on Instagram and she really seems to care. There, there are going to be people who will meet you in that temptation. That, that's, the devil is trying to line that up so that you might fall into sin. And so you can't, you can't lace repentance with a bunch of excuses. Genuine repentance looks exactly like King David laid it out for us. He says, Psalm 51, three, for I know my transgression and my sin is ever before me. My sin. You, you just read how directional David is as he's going through this Psalm. He's like, God, I know that I have done this. It is my sin, my transgression. He goes on later to say in 51, 17, he says, the sacrifice that God will receive, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, will you not despise? What he's saying is God is not desiring this sacrificial system that the Old Testament is laced in. Somehow King David is able to prophetically look forward past the uh, Old Testament system that Israel is currently in when he makes this mistake. And he's like, but I know this isn't it. This is not the end game here. You don't just want all these lambs and all this, all this blood uh, from bulls and everything else splattered on everything. No, what you desire is someone who is broken and contrite in their heart going, I am sorry, God, that I've offended you. And it's personal responsibility. It's going, I know that I messed up. I know that I made this mistake. And once you've reached that point, the next step for you, and this is, I think this could be so helpful for some people today, is that you should not just ask for different behavior once you reach the point of brokenness and you take that as personal responsibility, don't just ask God to change your behavior. Ask God to change your desires. This is what he does in Psalm 51.10. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. I, I, I've just noticed that over time, if you make these big promises to never do something ever again, what you're doing in that moment is you're actually empowering your flesh. You're not empowering the spirit of God in you. Let's take it off all the big hairy sins for just a minute. How many of y'all have tried to diet at some point? 
You tried to clean up your eating a little bit. You're like, I'm gonna go on keto. I'm gonna get all lean. I'm gonna look all good. And then what happens like that very night after you make that decision? Who calls you to go out to Dairy Queen? That person you haven't thought of in like years. And they're like, hey, ice cream, you and me, let's go. Am I lying? (laughs) As soon as you make this inward resolve, I'm never gonna drink again. You have now just empowered your flesh in two different kinds of ways. On the one hand, you probably will drink again. And if you follow that line out, now you're not only someone who turns to alcohol to numb your pain, you're also a failure because you couldn't hold up to your promise. And down the spiral, the devil will continue to drag you around and around and around because you failed. You did did this thing that you said you would never do again. So you just empowered your flesh to go that way. Or you'll be successful. And you'll say, I will never do this again. I will be the healthy person. This year, the New Year's resolution, like it is on me. I'm gonna tackle this thing. And you will do it and you will tackle it. And guess what you just did in that situation? You just empowered yourself as a self-righteous person and you are now your own savior. Do you see that? Because you just delivered yourself out of the situation you need deliverance from. The only problem is, if the sin was never dealt with, time does not heal sin. Time does not make sin go away. Only Jesus can make you clean. Only Jesus can heal you, can mend you, can clean you up from the messy, sinful situation that you've gotten yourself in. And here is the good news, church, is that his promise towards you, if you would take personal responsibility for your sin, if you acknowledge it to God, if you confess your sin, you turn, you repent, you come towards him. And if you lay, if you just genuinely go, Jesus, I desperately need your help. I'm not gonna make any excuses here. And I'm not gonna certainly try to just sugarcoat this in any sort of way. I have failed, I have messed up. Jesus promises to take your track record that is broken, that is filled with pain, that is filled with regret, filled with shame. And he promises to make you clean. Look at it. I mean, let's read a few verses. They're not gonna be up on the screen. We're just gonna read it. Psalm 51, starting verse seven, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. How white snow? I'm not talking about that snow in Colorado that's like, you know, like a few weeks after it's snow where it's like brown. Like that first fresh snowfall, you know what I'm saying? Like that cleansing. doesn't matter what the fall has looked like. It is now clean. That's you because of Jesus before God washed me whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, blot out my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways. We'll get to that in just a minute. The, the, the key thing about David coming before Jesus and seeking Jesus to cleanse him, like creating him a new heart, new desires. The way that that is so much more powerful to you than just asking God to clean up your behavior is, it, is it's actually now acknowledging something deep in your heart that it's not just that you accidentally sinned. You're starting to acknowledge now that you actually, you actually wanted to do that sin. When you ask God to clean your heart and renew your desires, what you're doing is you're clicking beneath the behavior because all behavior is just a byproduct of something that your heart already desires. And so it's not that you just have a problem with lust. It's that you have the desire to be connected to somebody. And maybe you're not getting the connection somewhere else, but rather than articulate that or have a hard conversation with your spouse or talk with somebody, you're taking a cheap and easy way and you're looking at something else online that feels cheap and easy to access. The only problem is once you learn that pattern of behavior, 
that's going to just continually leave you filled with shame, filled with isolation, disconnected. It's not going to solve what it promised to solve initially. That's what sin always does. Sin always promises to take you somewhere where it will deliver you, but then it leaves you feeling like you failed. Take it off lust. Take it off, take it on to, man, like, why, why do you, why do you drink? It's not because you just grew up with this dream to be, you know, this alcoholic. No, but you got stressed and in your stress, you chose to disconnect by having a few before you got home. And, and you just have this pattern now. And you have this way that you go where you just get, I can numb and I can isolate. But, but that it started with this desire to maybe be the kind of dad you always dreamed that you would have growing up. But now you've realized you can't be a perfect dad because guess what? Nobody is. And so you turn to alcohol to try and numb it, to try and fix it. And that has got you more trapped, more stuck than you ever thought you would be in before. Rather than just ask for God to change your behavior and empower your flesh, you go, God, I actually have this desire. Would you rework the desire that is in me? Would you give me a new heart that longs to do something different? And this is what Jesus offers to every single one of us. And as you receive new desires, as you receive a new heart, then you get to participate in the back half of this psalm where it says, then I will teach the transgressors, transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. David's saying, God, if you can deliver me from this, and I know you can, then I will start to teach other people who are caught in this same kind of moral bankruptcy and I will try to help them and I will tell them about how you're the forgiver. He says, deliver me from the blood guiltness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. You know who probably is singing the loudest on a Sunday morning? It's not some guy because he's obnoxious, because he just thinks he can get all the attention. It's probably somebody who understands he was once really, really guilty and now he's really, really innocent. And so now he gets to sing and he gets to declare what God has done in his life. Oh Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise for you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. Like it's not what you're after. You're not after me snapping my wrist every time I think something wrong or do something wrong. What you're after is a different desire that longs to actually want the thing that Jesus wants for your life. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, oh God, you will not despise. Then look at verse 18. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. David somehow, after processing through this, this lament, crying out to God because he's primarily, he's primarily committed an offense against God. He goes, God, I've messed up. And he turns to him and he owns his mistake. He doesn't make excuses. He asks for God to make new desires in his heart, not just change the outward external behavior, but actually like get within me and rework this thing to go the right direction now. And then once he does that, he's like, now I can help other people who are caught in the same kind of sin and I will continually have praise on my lips because I know where you brought me from. And then I'm asking you to bless the city that I live in. Too often the American prayer for, for repentance works the opposite way. God help those people out there in this city repent and turn around and do something better. And, and then bring them into the church and help them start behaving right. And then once they behave right, then we'll start singing and then we'll start singing and then we'll start behaving and then we'll start doing the right stuff together and we'll get this nation back on track. <laughs> it's always the phrase, isn't it? But instead, the way David works through the psalm starts with me. I messed up. I'm taking personal responsibility. God, would you please forgive me? And now help me, God. Help me have new desires in my heart. Help me get those desires out of me. Help me witness and love on other people. Help me bring along other people who are caught up in making the same mistakes that I used to make. And I just have a little bit more grace ahead of them right now that I can show them the way to go. And as I'm bringing them along, I can tell them that Jesus is the only one who offers to make you clean. You can't get clean by just waiting it out. 
You can't get clean by just other people forgiving you. You have to get clean. The only way that you can let go of the guilt permanently is by giving it to Jesus. And as you bring those people along and as we ask and we share and we testify, now all of a sudden we get to go, and God, would you bless this city? Would you continue to offer your grace and your salvation to this city? Do you see how that is backwards from the common American prayer for repentance? It's not start out there and work its way in here. It's, it starts right here. And now I'm not even talking right here. I'm saying it starts right here in my heart. You each have to make that decision for yourself. I can't make it for you. A prayer of confession and repentance. Kind of easy for David. Now, on the one hand, his, his mistakes are blasted out, you know, for everyone to see for the rest of time. But on the, other, on the other hand, we don't really read about David struggling morally in this area anymore. But I know for us, like I've heard it said before, confession and repentance are the two legs that the Christian gets to continually walk this thing of faith in. That doesn't mean we have to confess and repent every single time we make a mistake. Gosh, that's like basically all we would do, you know? But what it does mean is we continually go, okay, God, I'm sorry, I messed up there. We continually confess, not for salvation, but for sanctification. It's a totally different thing. My passport's already stamped to heaven, but I still got some becoming more like Jesus that I want to do while I'm here on earth. I still want to continue to look more like him, act more like him, talk like him, walk like him. And so I confess and I repent continually towards Christ. And that's the Psalm doesn't necessarily help us there because David just writes it down. But I wonder if David almost had to write this down as a journal entry for him to come back to time and time again, because we know he kept messing up. We know he kept making mistakes. So do you, so do I. Jesus is the only one who makes you clean. And that's what we celebrate every time we receive communion together. I hope you have communion elements. I hope you grab them on your way in. If not, you can throw your hand up in the air and we'll get some to you. But here's the thing. When we come to communion, what are we bringing? Not our sacrifice. We're not bringing this like, this like, oh God, I've got this awesome track record. You should see what I did this week. It was incredible. I just crushed it. We're not bringing our own sacrifice or our own merit. No, we're coming before the table recognizing, no, the only thing that we have to stand on the only appeal that we can make is your sacrifice on our behalf, Jesus. Because church, just a reminder for all of you this morning, Jesus has taken your sins and has cast them as far as the east is from the west. He has taken your sin, though it is as scarlet, and he's washed you white as snow. He's taken you, even though you were dead in your trespasses and sins, he's made you alive together in Christ. Those are the promises of scripture. And that's what we celebrate when we receive communion together. Not that we did it, but that he did. And so here's how we're going to respond. We have a few extra minutes this morning. And so I'm going to pray in just a moment. And then I'm going to give you some time just to spend a moment with the Holy Spirit, just asking, God, is there any way that I'm just like, am I trying to conceal something? Am I hiding something? Have I, have I not laid something down that belongs to you? And just spend some time with the Holy Spirit. And then we're going to actually respond with a song today. And so we'll sing along and then I'll come up and dismiss us. Give us a, one more thing to think on after that as we go from here. But for now, Hopefully you all have a communion. Let me pray. Well, Holy Spirit, we just ask that you would come. God, be in this moment. God, if it's guilt, that is the emotion that's being felt right now. You've given us a place to take it. I pray that we bring it right to your feet. That's why we have the emotion is to bring us in closer relationship with you and your grace. So help us to not just have grace be some sort of intellectual concept that we know about. Help us it be an experiential moment here where we receive the grace of God.
we recognize that this is not just a moment where we eat bread and drink juice. This is a moment where we, we participate in the sacrifice that you've made for us so that we can be called clean. So we can have a fresh start, a blank slate. So thank you, Jesus, for your sacrifice. I pray that you meet with your people now. Amen, church. The picture, I think, for all of us this morning, guilt is heavy. Like, it, it, I don't know if you got a, a box of guilt that you carry around with you in your everyday life. I don't know if you're pulling a trailer of guilt, but it can weigh you down. And, and here's the image for you this morning is you don't have to carry it anymore. You can unhitch from that trailer full of guilt right now in Jesus' name. Everything that you have done, every mistake that you have made, the wrongs in your past have all been paid for on the cross of Jesus Christ by the shedding of his blood and the breaking of his body. And so if you're not experiencing that guilt right now, I just want to ask that the Holy Spirit would show it to you in a beautiful way, maybe that you've never experienced before. I think way too many believers, they live with this sort of false guilt of still feeling sorry or bad for things that they have done. And I'm not saying that you shouldn't have some sort of idea of consequence for sin, but guilt was paid for by Jesus. Let me just remind you of a few things. You are loved by God. He has called you his son or his daughter. Everything that you have done has been blotted out from your account if you put your faith in him. And now you are credited with the righteousness of Christ. You have no mistakes according to your spiritual bank account. There is no debt that you owe whatsoever. You are now perfectly righteous, perfectly blameless, holy, able to come before God, not as one who has to offer a sacrifice, but as one who can be called a friend. That's you and that's me because of what Jesus has done on the cross. And so Holy Spirit, I pray right now for my friends, for my family at church. And I just ask that collectively, would we just let go of the guilt in your name, Jesus? Would we give it where it rightfully belongs at your feet, lay it down because of the cross of Jesus Christ. We no longer have to drag this guilt around with us anymore. We no longer have to be marked by shame. Would we be a people who are light and joyful because of our salvation? Would we not be looking back all the time, but would we be pressing forward in your name, Jesus? And would you sustain us? Don't let us treat that grace flippantly. Don't let us use that grace in a way where we exploit it. We keep coming back to the things that you've forgiven us for. But would you use that grace to empower us to live a righteous life? Empower us towards you, Jesus. Empower us to be the kinds of people who would go out from this church today. And would we sing about the goodness that you've brought to our life? Would we declare to the people who are caught in the same kind of sin that we are caught in? Would we declare to them that there is a forgiver in you? That there's a father who loves them in you? Jesus, help us represent you well as we step out of this church today and go about our week. We love you, Jesus, and it's in your name we pray. Amen.